Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We start a brand new week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. You know, you would have thought that at the end of last week, we would have looked back on events of the week and said, gee, the biggest story in politics this week was the fact that a president, former president of the United States, uh, was formally charged with uh, criminal uh, violations of law. Uh, And yet, it seems to me, and I'll ask the panel about this, that other stories in the news really eclipsed that. Um, There were some major developments in national political stories this week that we're going to talk about on the show today. Uh, The ruling in uh, an Amarillo, Texas court on uh, Mifepristone was one of them. Uh, The fact that um, uh, ProPublica released a story which suggests that Clarence Thomas and his wife Ginny for years had been uh, getting lavish vacations paid for by a major uh, conservative donor in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, Two African-American Democratic state representatives, young men, uh, thrown out of the legislature uh, because they participated in a demonstration calling for gun safety in the aftermath of the horrible school shootings in Nashville. All of those uh, seem to me to uh, eclipse even what happened in a Manhattan courtroom last week. So we're going to talk about all of those stories, and there's some important Georgia stories that we'll talk about as well. So let's get right to introducing the panel. It's Monday, which means that my partner from the AJC is Patricia Murphy, who uh, not only is a political reporter for the AJC, but also writes the insider Inside Politics column for uh, uh, the AJC. and. Uh, oversees uh, The Jolt, which you can read every day on AJC.com. Patricia, how are you? I'm doing great, Bill. Thanks for having me. Well, of course, we're very glad to have you with us. Um, Stephen Fowler, who is the political reporter for GPB News, is with us as well. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us, Bill, on this chilly morning. Chilly morning, it is indeed. Um, State Senator Kim Jackson, uh, whose uh, district kind of is located, the heart of the district is Stone Mountain, is back with us. We're always glad to have you on, Kim. Are you recovered fully yet from uh, a long and, uh, in many cases, trying session? I'm almost there, Bill. Almost there. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Eric Tannenblatt, who has for many years... Uh, been an advisor to Republicans up and down the ticket from presidential candidates like uh, the Bush, H.W. Uh, uh, Bush, George W. Bush, Jeb Bush, uh, very involved with Mitt Romney's presidential campaign, uh, chief of staff in Sonny Perdue's first term as governor, um, and now is the global chair of public policy at the law firm Denton's. And Eric, a little bit later in the show, we're going to Talk a little bit about what happened during your tenure at 
uh, with the governor, with Governor Purdue, in terms of uh, university funding. So I'm especially glad you're here today. Well, glad to be here. I'm glad to join such a great panel. All right, let's get right to it. Um, Patricia, the ruling by Matthew Kaczmarek in the Amarillo uh, Federal District Court uh, really uh, set a shockwave across the country. Kaczmarek ruled that FDA had not followed uh, proper procedures some 20-plus years ago in approving the use of mifepristone, which is uh, the first, usually the first of two drugs that are given to women who uh, need abortions, feel they should have abortions. And he basically said that FDA did not use the proper procedures for vetting the drug, and therefore uh, it, uh, he ordered them to stop uh, approval of the drug. Yes. And um, Bill, if you get into the details of that ruling that he issued, um, the language that the judge used is being cited by a number of Democrats who feel like this is more of a political document than a judicial opinion. Um, he said that the effect of mifepristone is that it starves the unborn human and forces an abortion. Um, also that women are traumatized by seeing the remains of their aborted children. And so um, Democrats have you know, they're kind of all over the map on this one. Some Democrats have said the Biden administration should ignore this order that has raised the concern of other Democrats saying there's a process for this. The Biden administration has appealed this. Um, it doesn't go in into effect until later this week. So they have some a little bit of time. Also, a Washington state judge issued an opposite order at the end of last week as well. Um, so while all of that is playing out, I think it's very important for listeners to know that the relevance of this drug, um, along with the fact that it's uh, the most used uh, form of uh, of medication in the most used kind of abortion right now in America, is that it's also a way that Republicans believe women can get around bans in states where um, abortion is either completely banned or, as in Georgia, um, banned after about six weeks once there is a, a fetal heartbeat um, because women can receive this through the mail right now. And it is very difficult, obviously, to um, monitor what's in everybody's mail. In fact, that's illegal. You can't go through people's mail to find out what's in there. And so it has been very difficult for Republicans to find a way to prevent drugs from being mailed to women, um, no matter what state they live in. And this uh, is a way that uh, would limit that significantly, even though, as you said, it has been available and being used um, safely for more than 20 years. The New York Times looked at 147 studies of mifepristone and published what they found. And in every single one of those studies, it was deemed to be safe. But Patricia, um, you did mention, and Kim, let me come to you on this, the language in Kaczmarek's ruling, which has... Uh, the people who oppose abortion cheering and the people who feel choice is essential are very upset. He doesn't talk about fetuses, as you said, Patricia. He talks about unborn humans, unborn children. He talks about doctors who provide abortions as abortionists. Uh, but Kim, then there's a very strange section of this ruling. He talks about um, 
uh, he uses a language uh, that reminds us of social Darwinism in the ruling. At one point, he writes this, quote, though eugenics were once fashionable in the commanding heights and high court, they hold less purchase after the conflict, carnage, and casualties of the last century reveal the bloody consequences of social Darwinism practiced, practiced by would-be Ubermenschen. I mean, that is a strange and kind of remarkable uh, 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 statement to put into a judicial ruling. It is. I mean, the entire ruling is clearly politically biased and comes from a very clear perspective around um, being a person who just simply does not support abortion. Um, but even, I think, more importantly, actually believes that it's some type of murder of a human being, right? Like that comes forth. It's um, usually you anticipate a judge and expect a judge to use um, more neutral language, uh, to be more judicial in their comments. Um, and, and, and he just simply isn't hiding it. I think it's also important to note that this drug is not just used for abortions. It's also used um, when women have miscarriages as well. And so um, this puts us in an interesting place for those women who do have miscarriages as to what drugs would be available um, to help them in that process so that they're not forced to have other more invasive procedures as well. And so this has long-term effects, not just for people who are seeking abortions, but also for any woman who happens to have a miscarriage, which can already be a very traumatic experience for a woman. And so not being able to take medication and the safety and privacy of her own home in order to treat that um, adds additional complications to it. So um, I think many of us across the, the country are deeply disturbed by this ruling um, and, and greatly concerned. I will say the last piece about his, his reference to eugenics um, is because there has been this long narrative from um, the kind of pro-life people or the forced birth folks around how abortions are being used to kill Black babies. That has been a myth that has been um, promulgated from this group of folks. And so I think that's what he's doing is he's trying to kind of hit at that and, um, in a way that's uh, deeply disturbing. Stephen, um, let's go to the other side of this. The Washington state uh, uh, ruling uh, applies to, uh, I believe it's 17 states where uh, Democratic uh, attorney generals argued and sued to prevent uh, uh, any, the courts from blocking the use of mifepristone. And it's my understanding that, that his ruling will affect those 17 states in some way, um, perhaps, but even that's up in the air because Kaczmarek's ruling, you know, blocks FDA from mifepristone in general. Yeah, it's it's a little bit like uh, the meme of a Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man, because usually when you have a judge's ruling on an issue, it's kind of settled until it goes to the next level, either the appeals court or things like that. But here you have two federal judges issuing conflicting rulings about something, which is like the do not pass go, do not collect $200 straight to the Supreme Court. We need the highest court in the land to resolve this uh, outcome. And it, you know, it, it, it does, it's conflicting, it's confusing, but even more so conflicting when you add to these things is the fact that if the Texas ruling is the one that is to prevail, that doesn't necessarily stop the FDA from, uh, basically the FDA can just ignore 
the ruling in a certain part. So it's something that's very complicated. It's something that, um, you know, even people that cover a lot of reproductive health uh, stories for the last decade or so say that they haven't really seen anything like this. And then now we're just going to have to see uh, how this gets resolved in the courts and what happens when uh, even a court ruling isn't the final word on this. So, uh, I, I, Eric, it, let's talk about the political side of this for a couple of minutes. Um, there is reason to believe that the litigants in this case, the anti-abortion group that uh, uh, took this uh, case uh, to Kaczmarek, was, they were doing judge shopping. Uh, Kaczmarek is a well-known uh, 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 conservative who has a long history of opposing abortion. He is the single judge, federal judge in Amarillo, and so any case that uh, goes to Amarillo is heard in his court, and it suggests that the uh, litigants knew that they'd get a favorable ruling because of Kaczmarek's political uh, point of view. Well, it certainly appears that way. And I think that, you know, after the Dobbs decision, I think the Supreme Court was hoping that this was all going to be handled at the state level. And now it looks like they're going to have to get uh, involved. Um, I mean, this is this is concerning uh, politically, too, you know, for uh, at least Republicans, because, um, you, you know, while you have a segment of the Republican electorate that is pro-life, uh, Republicans uh, also have uh, members of their party uh, that aren't as ardent pro-lifers, and they need to appeal to independent voters. And as you've seen around the country, most recently in Wisconsin in the Supreme Court race, uh, that issues um, like abortion are mobilizing uh, the electorate. And uh, I think that, you know, you're dealing, this is concerning in a number of ways. Politically, I think it's concerning, but I also think you're dealing with uh, a medical issue. And uh, this isn't, you know, you need to take this stuff all, you know, very seriously. Um, and unfortunately, now I think this is, you know, become a, a national issue again. And the high court's going to have to um, resolve it. You know, um, Patricia, I think Eric makes a really important point. The first level of concern in this is what happens to women right now who want to be able to use, yes, for the next seven days, they're in the clear, but what happens uh, if they are denied the use of mifepristone? We know they can use. Uh, still legally, the second drug in the uh, combination of drugs that are now prescribed, but it, it is not quite as effective. It can, without mifepristone, using the second drug can lead to more complications, more pain, certainly, uh, for the women involved. So I don't want to um, make the mistake of, of forgetting that that's the first level of concern here. What choices do women have? The politics of it, though, are equally trouble are, are somewhat troubling in my mind. So you've got Kesmeric clearly has a political point of view of abortion in Amarillo, but Janet Protasiewicz in Wisconsin made no secret of the fact 
uh, that she, as a candidate for the Wisconsin State Supreme Court, was running to be able to overturn Wisconsin's prohibition against abortion. In, in both of these cases, we see the judiciary being entirely politicized, um, which is troubling in and of itself, it seems to me. Well, I think there are two issues here. The first is that the Texas judge is overruling an FDA approval of a drug, which is based on science and data and safety information and um, broad-based scientific studies. Um, and uh, in the Wisconsin case, that is a debate and an argument over laws that have been passed. And so the concern, particularly among doctors, is if you establish a precedent of a judge overruling the FDA on a long-approved drug and its safety, what does that open the door to? Are we going to start talking about um, uh, birth control pills, COVID vaccines. Um, and there are also processes to appeal FDA approval of something, but that goes through a scientific process rather than a political process. So when you mix the two there, that opens an, a Pandora's box of all kinds of potential issues. Um, and then on the political piece, I think it's also very important to remember that this is a federal ruling about a federal um approval at the state level, that is a completely different conversation. And Georgia, any state can ban the use of abortion drugs at any point in pregnancy. Georgia lawmakers have tried to um, narrow the ways that women can access this, saying that they need to have an in-person doctor's appointment in order to have abortion drugs. During COVID, uh, the FDA said it is permissible to use these through the mail with a telehealth appointment, and um, that is safe. During COVID, there were very few reports of that being unsafe or having problems, but Republicans did uh and Senator Jackson will have to tell me if that law passed or not. <laughs> I don't actually know the answer to that, but this debate was absolutely raging at the General Assembly um, when Republicans said, and now you need to see a doctor if you want to, if you're a woman and you want to access these drugs. So, um, at, but at the state level, states can and um, are planning to and trying to um, restrict or ban the use of these drugs, including in Georgia. Okay, so um, um, Kim Jackson, let me ask you a, a, a different version of that uh, same question. Um, so right now, women in Georgia with a doctor's prescription can obtain mifepristone through the mail. But I assume that it still falls under the six-week heartbeat ban, yes? I mean, a woman who is 12 weeks pregnant it may be, as Patricia pointed out, you can't monitor the mail uh, legally, but uh, uh, but it is illegal for, say, a woman who is 12 weeks pregnant uh, to get mifepristone through the mail anyway. Yes? Right. I mean, so it's it's illegal to have an abortion post six weeks um, here in, in the state of Georgia. Um, so you do have to meet that. And also, uh, it's important that the abortion pill is not recommended past 10 weeks in the first place. Um, and so right. that's a 
a really important note because it, in theory, a woman could actually get the prescription from a doctor and um, have the medication mailed to her and then delay taking it. And that would, for anybody who's listening, I, I just want to be clear, that actually would not be recommended because um, the, the drug does need to be used within that first 10, 10 weeks. But um, Patricia noted, we did have a very vigorous debate on the floor about um, trying to ban medication being shipped uh, to Georgia in the first place. And that bill did not pass. Um, there were very rigorous conversations and debates about it. But I think fundamentally, practically speaking, it's just it's basically impossible to to really implement. Right. Um, because of all the things that you've named before. Um, so but we do in Georgia. This is not unusual for us to say like there's some restrictions on who can use what drug. We saw this with the trans um, bill in terms of allowing children to receive um, gender affirming care. You can get pre blockers, but you can't get hormone replacement therapy. Right. That is a, a clear ban on a drug that has been deemed safe. Um, but but Georgia lawmakers have made a different decision. So this isn't unusual on a state level. It is uh, certainly unusual, though, to see happening from a federal court judge. Uh, Stephen, before we move on, and then Eric, I'd like to get you in the same question, on the same question. Um, the the uh, uh, Republicans are being very quiet. Democrats, including President Biden, are speaking out uh, passionately about the fact that they will do everything they can to uh, uh, challenge Casmeric's uh, ruling and assure that mifepristone can continue to be used. In the meantime, very few Republicans, with the exception right now, basically of Mike Pence, who praised the ruling. This is not a subject Republicans want to get into, Stephen. Well, and I think I think the only other uh, lawmaker that you see is I think Cindy Hyde Smith. Uh, I think is the only other federal lawmaker that has really spoken out about this in the Senate. Mm-hmm. But it, it, this decision comes on the heels of a 2022 midterm election where conversations about abortions and elections where voters felt that abortion access was on the ballot did not go well for many Republicans. And it comes on the heels of this Supreme Court election in Wisconsin that flipped control of the Supreme Court because in part of the theories and thinkings of how that court would rule on abortion restrictions. And so this is not something that is the same level of popular aggressive messaging for Republicans right now as things like the economy or even the uh, transgender issues that uh, lawmakers have been pushing in a lot of states this year. And so this ruling Uh, I think potentially does more of a political disservice to a lot of conservatives and a lot of Republican politicians because of the very recent data points of Democrats and independent voters uh, saying that they don't share the same views as conservatives. Eric, you got a final word in this segment. Yeah, I agree with Stephen. As I said before, I mean, this is not a political, this is not a, a topic that Republicans, you know, really want to be talking about right now. Uh, and I think Stephen's dead on. We should be talking about the economy. We should be talking about what's happening around the globe. Uh, you know, relitigating the 2020 election and listening to the former president talk about that or talking about this issue uh, is, is is not a winner. It's a distraction for for Republicans. And I don't want to trivialize this because, as I said before, we're, t- we're dealing about with medical issues here. But, you know, I thought that 
when the Supreme Court ruled on Dobbs and, and really gave the authority back to the states, that that's where this issue was going to be discussed and debated and each state was going to handle it the way uh, they felt appropriate in their respective state. And now this is now a national issue and we're talking about abortion at the national level. And uh, I don't think it's a it's a it's it's not it's not a positive for the Republican Party. But quite honestly, I don't think it's positive uh, for the country right now when we have bigger issues that we need to be dealing with. Well, it's certainly not positive for women who believe that an abortion is something that yeah. they truly must have either. So thank you for that observation, uh, Eric. I'm, the other thing is, I'm sure the United States Supreme Court, as you said, we, a number of you have said, wanted this to go to the states. And here it comes. It's going to be right back in their laps again. And I imagine that's the last thing they uh, want to deal with. Um, let's get our first break of the show out of the way when we come back. A lot more to talk about with this panel on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Eric Tannenblatt, State Senator Kim Jackson, Stephen Fowler, and Patricia Murphy join me on this edition of Political Rewind. Um, let's go to Tennessee. Let's go just north of our border, um, Patricia. And as we know, last week, the uh, Republican majority in the legislature, the supermajority that uh, 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 gerrymandering has given Republicans in that legislature, uh, led to the ouster of two young black Democratic uh, members, Justin Jones, who represents Nashville itself, and Justin Pearson, who represents Shelby County. And of course, Patricia, the Republicans ousted them because they were active. They became involved in a protest. Um, uh, Hundreds and hundreds of people descended on the Tennessee legislature to uh, protest the fact in the aftermath of the horrendous Nashville school shooting in which six people died, um, saying we have to have gun control regulations, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, on the floor of the House, uh, kind of uh, uh, encouraged the crowd that had filled the uh, gallery uh, to continue their protests, and they were voted out of office last week. And it stunned many, many people. Yes. And it really felt like Tennessee was not ready for its close up last week. Um, It reminded me so much of the day that Park Cannon was arrested at the Georgia State Capitol um, when she was knocking on the door of Governor Kemp's office as he was signing um, the voting (sighs) overhaul bill. Um, And uh, there were cameras there and the national news was this young black lawmaker had been arrested for um, protesting the uh, voting 
bill that had just passed. Um, and it just exploded into a massive national story. And um, in the case in Tennessee, um, both of those uh, two Black lawmakers were expelled, uh, really specifically because Republicans have a supermajority in that uh, in that caucus. And um, they can essentially do whatever they want. That is not the case here in Georgia. Um, but the white lawmaker who was uh, standing alongside the two young black two young black lawmakers um, was not expelled. There, she was. She got one more vote than they did, and so she, the supermajority, did not uh, was not able to oust her. The law in Georgia says that a supermajority can um, can uh, eliminate or uh, uh, kick out members. Um, but again, in Georgia, it's just a totally different political environment. And in Nashville, the city council has the authority and is planning to reappoint Justin Jones. So just as quickly as he was out, he will be back in. And I think the Tennessee lawmakers effort to diminish these young gentlemen's voices has had the complete opposite effect and trained um, the nation's eyes on this legislature that not only are they not ready for their close-up, they really feel like they're stuck in 1950. Eric, um, there were, it, they did violate rules of the legislature. Um, by uh, one of them had a bullhorn and was encouraging, as I said, the crowd in the gallery to, you know, continue their uh, protest. Um, and, and most people who watch this acknowledged that. But the fact that the Republican majority, led by their speaker, went to the extreme of expelling those two and not expelling the white woman who was also involved in the protest, just you couldn't ask for it, 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 it seems like a case of injustice, but also a terrible look for the for the uh, controlling forces in that legislature, Eric. I, I totally agree. I think uh, they were tone deaf. I mean, there's a way in which you could uh, acknowledge if someone you know violates the the rules. Uh, it doesn't have to be by expelling them. And uh, you know the fact that uh, the two. Uh, black legislators got expelled and the white legislator didn't is just it, 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 it's hard to it's hard to believe. Um, and I think, you know, even, you know, going back to the previous issue we were just talking about, talking about what happened in Wisconsin and then here in, in Tennessee, I, I think, you know, what Republicans are, are, are not acknowledging and they need to is that they are mobilizing uh, people that are going to be working against them if they do stuff like this. And the two lawmakers in Nashville uh, who were expelled, you know, I've, a lot of people I'm sure have seen them on television. They're both very articulate. I don't necessarily agree with, you know, some of their positions on some of the issues, but they have every right to represent the district that elected them. And, 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 and so I think we need to be very careful, uh, you know, we're, that we don't go down a slippery slope and we don't awaken the sleeping giant. And, you know, some of these issues that we're talking about are really going to mobilize people. And uh, I think Republicans need to be careful about that. Kim? Yeah, I just, 
I, I just echo um, actually what Eric is saying that, um, you know, the, the fact is that Representatives Jones and Pearson, um, the, they were standing up uh, really on behalf of children, right? They were calling for gun control in the face of children being killed. And um, that's just really that's a winner. Um, most Americans are going to hear that somebody is standing up and demanding that our schools be safer for our children. And I don't care what side of the political aisle you're on. Um, we all believe that our children should be able to be safe in schools. And so um, it's just a really bad look for Republicans um, to be expelling these um, young legislators, uh, legislators for really asking for the thing that most Americans want, right? Um, we want um, some type of um, realistic uh, checks on who can get guns, who can access guns. But more importantly, we want to make sure that our children are safe in our schools. And so, you know, I listened to the debate and Justin Pearson, Representative Pearson, over and over named the names of the children who were killed um, and named the names of other young people that he knew from his own district who've been gunned down. And it's extraordinarily compelling. Um, the, the last thing I want to note about this was that um, Justin Pearson had only been in the, text, in the Tennessee General Assembly for two weeks. He won on a special election. He was very, very new. And uh, so then to in turn watch him stand up and, uh, you know, he stood and debated and stood in his own defense for for several hours in uh, such a powerful way. I mean, I, I could not have been prouder uh, to watch that young black man stand up and um, speak so clearly and passionately in defense of um, not just his own um, ability to stay in the General Assembly, but but also standing up and saying, we must fight for these children. We must elevate these voices. It was it was really powerful to hear. Um, they both are likely to be returned to the uh, legislature by their local bodies. But the question will be, how will they be treated? Uh, both of them on Meet the Press yesterday pointed out, Stephen, that they have been in many ways um, marginalized in any case. Justin Pearson talked about the fact that when he wears a dashiki, on the floor of the House. He's uh, criticized uh, for it, marginalized in that way. They both have suffered from a rule that the Speaker has imposed five minutes uh, to speak in the well. And they both said that when they get take the well, they're allowed to, or, or when they're asking a question from the floor, uh, that what typically is happening is that the uh, uh, the speaker in in the well is taking all five minutes to answer the question, and therefore they have to uh, sit down. So they, it's going to be interesting to see what happens to them uh, uh, next. But Stephen, can I can I ask you a different question? I don't know. I know you're much younger, obviously, than I am, but I couldn't help but think about Julian Bond. I I mean, I was up in Chicago. When the young Julian Bond, a guy, he was in his mid-20s, was elected to the Georgia House of Representatives, and he was denied a seat. Of course, it was a Democratic-controlled legislature, let's make that clear, uh, but a conservative Democratic uh, House. And because Julian Bond had opposed the war in Vietnam, been an outspoken critic, he was denied his seat. Um, so we have precedents here, Stephen for something like that happening, although, thank goodness, it's in our 50-year past. Well, and you actually can go back even further to the late 1860s when you had the first black lawmakers in Georgia that were elected that were expelled simply for being yeah. black. And 
you know, it, it's it's not a good look for the South, and it's not a good look for expelling people, especially because it was the two black lawmakers that were expelled and not the one white lawmaker who did essentially the same thing. But what it also is shining a light on, well, there's a couple of things. I mean, this is definitely a, the Streisand effect in action, where uh, expelling these two lawmakers for protesting gun control are only bringing more attention to Tennessee's failure to entertain even a debate over these gun control issues. And the fact that the two of them will probably be put back into the legislature and then run in these special elections and win again only is going to put more light and more attention on what they're doing and what they're saying. And really what we're seeing, and not just in Tennessee, but in Wisconsin and other places like that, is places where there are super majorities, whether it's gerrymandered or things like that, where it is one party being in control. You're also seeing this in New York. It's not just Republican states, but parties where states where there are one party control of government and them wielding that power in a heavy handed manner. People don't like that and they're pushing back on it. And even when you see a state like Georgia, where there is obviously <laughs> Georgia is no perfect state, even in its modern era now. But when you have more people that are more accountable to more ideologies and more different points of view, you don't get the level of hostility that you see in Tennessee, where people are talking about urinating in other people's chairs and name callings and, you know, using slurs and text messages and things like that. And so obviously Georgia's not perfect by any means. But uh, when we and we think about other things, I, I saw a former Tennessee lawmaker say that, like, what company is going to want to come to Tennessee and expand when that's the government that they would deal with and things like that. And so it's just another thing to think about, uh, especially when uh, looking elsewhere in the South. Yeah, the other thing I think it's important to name about this is that this is a, an erosion of our democracy. So by expelling those two young men, there are now hundreds of thousands of Tennesseans who do not have a represent, <laughs> representative in the General Assembly, right? Um, and so it may be a brief period of time, it may be a more lengthy period of time, depending on how long it takes for a special election um, for one of those seats. But but that means that there are people who go unrepresented. And our democracy depends on every person having someone being rep representing them um, in that General Assembly. So I think that's something also that we must name um, and highlight that's at play here. Patricia, before I get to a break, um, we can only imagine what these young men uh, are dealing with um, right now emotionally. They've been very articulate, as Eric pointed out, in describing how they feel about this all. But I went back and found an interview that Julian Bond gave a little bit later in his life. He died in 2015. I think he was 70 years old. And um, several years before that, he sat down for an interview with C-SPAN, and he was asked about being expelled from the Georgia legislature as a young black man. And he said, well, I always knew I was going to win. I always knew the Supreme Court would put me back. But he actually had to run three times because he kept being expelled until the court, uh, Supreme Court said, you can't kick him out. And But he did acknowledge to the interviewer what it was like emotionally. Let's just listen. When they threw me out of the legislature, eventually, there was a period of about three hours one day between when... We appeared before the body and something happened. There's about a three hour delay. And I went to a room in the basement of the Capitol and I broke out in hives 
in just all over my face, just awful, terrible. And uh, just nerves, nervousness. I was nervous. You know, that was, everybody was looking at me, everybody was staring at me, people were taking pictures of me, uh, sticking microphones in my face. And that was tremendously nerve-wracking. But I always knew we, we would win. Patricia, Justin Jones, and Justin Pearson probably know exactly what Julian Bond felt like back then. Yeah, you look back at somebody like Julian Mond and history says he's a hero and he prevailed. But in the moment, it is so difficult. And particularly when he was going through this um, a, a kind of little tiny history lesson, uh, the house where I live in Atlanta used to belong to Rodney Mims Cook, who was a Republican member of the legislature at the time. He was one of five people who voted to seat Julian Bond. And um, when we were buying our house, his son said, oh, this is where the cross was burned in the front yard. And the children had to escape out the back window down a ladder um, with their babysitter because they could see the flames through the windows. They closed all the windows, um, but the flames were sort of licking up to the top of the trees. And that was the world that they were living in, even simply allies of Julian Bond. So you imagine what Julian Bond went through then. And I promise that anybody involved in this in Tennessee, based on what we know in Georgia, is likely getting threats. They're likely having their family threatened. Um, anybody who will stand up um, really pays the price in the moment. They will eventually, I think, be looked back on um, in history as being extremely brave. They sound even, they remind me so much of John Lewis, who attended Fisk University as well. Um, but in the moment, it is so trying. And that's what makes it more remarkable that they're doing it. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for sharing that story. It's very powerful. As a child of the 60s, I have to say, when I see Justin Pearson, with a really beautifully defined afro wearing his dachiki, I think to myself, the movement is not dead. And it does my, my 60s protester heart good. We've got to get to our final break of the show back in just a minute. Patricia Murphy, the ProPublica piece on Clarence Thomas and his long friendship with Harlan Crow, one of the biggest uh, uh, donors to conservative causes in the country. The fact that for more than 20 years, Thomas and his wife Ginny have been going on what ProPublica calls luxury vacations on super yachts and the like, trips in some cases that would cost them, ProPublica estimates, $500,000 if they had to pay for themselves. Um, has obviously caused a lot of, uh, of controversy. Um, and the question, again, becomes, you know, Clarence Thomas, who has always been a lightning rod for controversy on the court, um, now finds himself accused, perhaps, of, uh, of you know, using his relationship with Harlan Crow and um, perhaps making judicial decisions based on his friendship. Yeah, well, and um, Supreme Court justices, unlike members of Congress and um, the president, are not required to disclose these kinds of trips. They had not been prior to this point. And so there is this huge, I, I think, partially in an effort to protect people's privacy, but also in an effort to obscure 
what's going on at the court. Uh, not a lot of transparency into the justices or the worlds they live in. Um, and this obviously raised huge concerns because, as you pointed out, one of those trips would have been worth half a million dollars if um, if the Thomases had paid for their own super yacht and private jets. I think particularly because uh, Justice Thomas's wife, Jenny Thomas, is such a political figure. It all creates a situation where your average bear, your average American looks at this and says, wow, this feels wrong. It doesn't mean that it is wrong, but I think more disclosure is is essential to know um are justices um receiving this kind of largesse from people who are equally in um yeah uh, patricia you just froze so we're going to try to remedy that in a, a second oh. here you're back um uh uh so stephen um thomas says look I when I first came to the court, I asked my colleagues what the rules of disclosure were. They told me uh, what they were, and I stayed on the safe side of the line. And as Patricia pointed out, there aren't particularly stringent rules, or at least there weren't until recently about disclosure for justices. But we should point out that the Wall Street Journal editorialized on this, and I'll just read a, a, a little bit of it. The left's assault on the Supreme Court is continuing, and the latest front is the news that Justice Thomas has a rich friend who has hosted the justice on his private plane, his yacht, and his vacation resort. That's it. That's the story. Yet this non-bombshell has triggered breathless claims that the court must be investigated and that Justice Thomas must resign or be impeached. Those demands give away the real political game here. Stephen? Well, that Wall Street Journal op-ed also uh, accused ProPublica of the crime of using adjectives to describe things, like how dare they call a super yacht a super yacht. And so it kind of rings hollow, but also it's an opinion piece, which uh, usually most do. But the the thing is, if the shoe were on the other foot and, say, a more liberal justice was palling around with a liberal billionaire— uh, or even was somebody in the justice system who, say, received money from somebody like, say, George Soros. Imagine what the reaction would be. And so that's it's a lot of politics is hypocrisy. But this story uh, really shows, I think, that there's a lot of uh, it's not OK when other people do it, but it's OK when somebody that you like does it. It applies to both parties and applies to a lot of things. But this particular story uh, no, I, I don't think there's really any story of a federal judge or somebody like that getting into trouble for disclosing too much about potential conflicts of interest or potential things that they were given or gifted that could be a problem. I mean, I think some of the other justices like described like a $20 pocket watch or something that they got. Like it's the, the more disclosure, the better, especially in the eyes of the public, especially at a time where people question the judiciary and question everything. And so that's the big takeaway of the story, I think. Eric, I could not help but picture Justice Thomas, Chief Justice, uh, I'm sorry, Justice Roberts, uh, reading that story and smacking his forehead with his palm. Here's a justice, this, the, the chief judge, who has tried so hard to minimize how people feel about the politics of the court, and this is not helping. Well, we're living in a different time. 
I mean, we, you know, with social media, uh, I think the court is uh, open to much more heightened scrutiny uh, than it has been uh, in the past. And look, Justice Thomas, uh, you can have an opinion as to what he did, uh, but he was following the rules as they currently exist. Now, there may be a call for uh, more disclosure on the part of justices, but as he said, he checked and what uh, he he didn't need to disclose some of that. We don't know what every other justice has done over the history of the Supreme Court because they didn't have to disclose it. And, you know, as a, someone who used to work for a member of Congress, I can tell you that that was always an issue when you had a friend and you were doing something, if the member was doing something with a friend, what had to be disclosed and what didn't. And the, and the Congress actually has rules for that now. Uh, but they're just those rules don't exist with the with the Supreme Court. It does for some other parts of the judiciary. And I think that this will actually cause some you know action to likely be taken. Kim, it strikes me it's probably fortuitous that the legislature did not go ahead and approve the statue of Clarence Thomas on Capitol grounds. <laughs> yes, I think that was a, a good decision. Um, but I, I will say, you know, my my mom used to always tell me it's important to avoid the appearance of evil, um, and not that necessarily what he did was evil. But when you are in a in a high ranking position, you do have to avoid the appearance of impropriety or the appearance of things um, looking bad. Um, and so, um, I actually think that Clarence Thomas, you know, he didn't break any rules, but it looks bad, and that's what um, has kind of got him caught up. And I will also say, in all fairness to him, um, you know, this is probably one of the most minor things that of all the things that Clarence Thomas has done and of all the ways that he has um, acted, the judgments that he has made as a judge, um, I will say as a Democrat, this is like the lowest hanging fruit. Um, I'm much, much more concerned about how he has ruled um, while being a justice and whether or not he went on vacation on a yacht. Thank you all for that conversation. Uh, Eric, we're almost out of time, but while, we're, while we've got you on the show, I, I wanted to talk to you about Sonny Perdue and the cuts in the budget, but there's something that, that I, I want to address even more fundamentally that you're involved with. Bill White pulled up stakes. His Buckhead cityhood movement is dead. You're the head of the Buckhead Coalition. How are you feeling now that Bill White's leaving town? Well, I, I've never met Bill White. And, you know, I, I will say that, you know, he's obviously has a lot of energy and was very effective in mobilizing people. I'm more interested now in addressing the problems. And, you know, and I think we're doing a good job with that. And I don't think just because the legislator voted down Buckhead City, we need to take our eye off the ball. And, you know, we want to improve public safety and city services and make sure the people of Buckhead are treated uh, the way that they deserve to be treated. And, you know, we're doing a lot of outreach right now in the community, working with neighborhood leaders, business groups. And that's where our focus is. Uh, we're not really paying a whole lot of attention to personalities. But but real quickly, Patricia, there is a sense that perhaps the Buckhead Cityhood movement really is close to dead. Yes. And Eric was just very, um, very appropriate in his comments about Bill White. I thought they might be more you colorful. Mean dip, dip, uh, diplomatic. Yes, diplomatic <laughs> is the right word. Yes, it. This movement has lost 
all altitude. I think we can reasonably say it has crashed and burned. There are major problems in Buckhead, but I think um, they will they are being addressed and will continue to be addressed with um, Eric and others pushing for them. Patricia Murphy gets the last word on today's Political Rewind. Stephen Fowler, Senator Kim Jackson, Eric Tannenblatt, um, thank you all, and Patricia as well, for being with us today. Terrific conversation to start the week. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care, stay healthy, and be good to one another. Bye, everybody. <laughs>